If physicians were here to provide cure, the profession would have begun when streptomycin or penicillin was discovered. But we know that the profession has been here for over a thousand years, and that's because it started out as providing comfort. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator. I work with caregivers to help them find solutions to the many problems that arise when dealing with someone with dementia. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support, and we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter's the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Well, that might be the second best medicine, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've often wondered and talked and, and questioned about if culture and ethnicity play a part in dementia and dementia behavior. Yes, I want to make sure that we reach out to people of as many cultures as possible and let them know that we're a resource for them. Um, And that brings us to today's guest. He's an MD from John Hopkins Medicine who specializes in neuropsychiatry and focuses on the care of individuals who have neurodegenerative dementias. His practice focuses on conditions that develop in midlife or earlier, including frontal temporal dementias, young onset Alzheimer's disease, prion disease, and others. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Chadi Anyike. Thank you, doctor, for being part of our show today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. We would love to have you share with our listeners how you came to do the work that you do, what inspired you to do that, and any personal experience you might have with somebody that has one of these devastating brain diseases. Uh, yes. Uh, what inspired me? I, yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it seems an easy question to answer, uh, but, but it's not. Perhaps because there are many strands to it. Uh, from an early age, uh, my dad, my parents, but particularly my, my father, uh, introduced us or introduced me to thinking about psychological states and um, thinking about the mind. And I think that had something to do with his having worked in, uh, when he was in Colorado uh, as a graduate student working uh, with mental, mentally impaired, p- people with mental illness, with chronic mental illness. And so I got introduced very early to Freudian ideas, for example. Uh, but along with that, uh, I remember at a very early age, there was a, a neighbor. We, we, were, we, had, we had a nice neighborhood, a lot of children, same age. And there was a dog, Rex, uh, our neighbor's dog, Rex. And we used to play with Rex all the time. And there was a red ball that we used to play, that we used to play with Rex with. And I one day got to thinking, well, if I could where enter Rex's brain? Would I call this ball with my own brain? If I could enter Rex's eyes with my own brain, would I call this ball red? So does Rex see red as I see red? You know, so that's a weird idea. But I've always been interested um, from that early in how the brain works. So, so maybe you've seen the web- the website uh, How Stuff Works. So for me, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, that's the brain. Uh, how does stuff work uh, in the brain? Well, you certainly picked on something extraordinary to try to figure out how it works. Well, we're still working, but you know, the good thing is if you solve it too quickly, then you're unemployed. So perhaps, <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps it's good to, uh, to 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 work at it for a while. So that's how I got interested in in um, 
in uh, brain sciences. And I knew, I knew as I was going to medical school that I was going to be going into the brain sciences. And so I was very interested in psychiatry and neurology and neurosurgery, uh, but mainly in psychiatry and neurology because those were the fields that were more concerned with how the brain functions as opposed to removing stuff, uh, disease from the brain. Um, and I eventually trained in, in, in psychiatry and then I've gravitated to neuropsychiatry because brain diseases are uh, lesions, if you will. They're, you learn a lot about the human, human body's function, different areas of function from, from diseases because when, when, some, when a part of the body is not working well, then that reveals its function, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, reveals, it reveals its function. Now, on a personal side, um, my paternal grandmother did have dementia. Um, I was in my teens when she developed it. I can't say that I understood it then the way I do, certainly not on the science side, but even not really on the human side. You know, when you're a teenager, you're very much also about yourself and your friends and that sort of thing. Uh, we did help. We had a good relationship with my grandmother, a close relationship. She lived with us for, um, she, she spent a lot of time with us. She didn't exactly live with us, but she spent a lot of time with us. We visited her very frequently. But it was, it was many years later, after I had become a, 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 an expert in dementia, that I actually sat with my dad and interviewed him, so to speak, about that experience and what it was like, providing care for my grandmother. Now, I grew up in Nigeria, uh, even though I was born in Colorado. I grew up in Nigeria. Um, and so the, I was very much interested in his perspective uh, because of the differences in culture and infrastructure, that sort of thing. So one of the discussions that Bobby and I had just as recently as last night is I'm a musician. Yeah. And when we listen to music, we listen completely different based on my dedication to music and being a musician and her not and how that difference is so profound in listening to music and how we enjoy music and we're not that far apart now when you're talking about nigeria and europeans and the different countries in europe and then here in the united states and canada do you see many many um differences as far as the development of the dementias or the reactions when the dementia is developed? I would say not, not differences, not, no differences in terms of the, how they manifest, you know, forgetting, confusion, disorientation, progressive loss of skills. So I wouldn't say that there are group differences. Um, as you're correctly hinting at, um, there might be person-to-person -person differences that are to some degree shaped by the background. So the journey will not be the same for everyone in the details. Uh, but in, the, in terms of what a physician wants to know to make a diagnosis, what the symptoms were, how it began, um, and even what you'll see in, on brain images or if you did uh, certain kinds of tests, the answer would be no differences, no real, no major differences. Now, in terms of the reaction, um, substantive differences. Um, for one thing, uh, in many parts of the world, and this is common in, in Nigeria, in many parts of Nigeria, at least the parts of Nigeria that I'm very familiar with, there are a number of things that influence how people react to the illness. One is um, 
an idea that it is a natural part of life, that you get to a certain age and these things happen. So a second childhood, if you will, or senility. Um, so concepts of senility, but not necessarily put in those words. Uh, there are also aspects that have to do with religious magical thinking. Um, and that has more to do with care. That has that collides more with help help seeking behavior. Now another thing that you run into is sophistication on the part of the medical community. So there's the knowledge about dementia is very low, even among neurologists and psychiatrists in many parts of Nigeria. Now you will find experts, um, people who really know much of what I, you know what I know, and who who perform at that level, but there, there are very few of them, very few of them. Another issue that arises is that is language. Um, there are many more languages in Nigeria, estimated to be over 200. Wow. And there are a number of people who have more command of that language, of their native language than they do of English. So that poses a challenge uh, for doing assessments. And it makes standardized instruments unhelpful because Standardized instruments are mostly developed in the major in the major international languages. Now, something that we became aware of in talking to caregivers of different ethnicities, um, we had uh, a guest on who is African American, and she spoke about how different medications respond differently in people who have her background. And we became aware of differences in the medication prescribed for someone with Alzheimer's disease as opposed to Lewy body disease. Sometimes it, it reacts very differently in those. So that kind of sparked my interest in finding out more about how people from different cultures might respond to these diseases. Um, and I, I definitely appreciate talking to you about this today. Um, we tend to think of, at least in the United States, the model for investigating diseases is a white male. And we know that men's bodies and women's bodies are very different. And, you know, people that have had a long history of living in a different way, I would imagine that, that medications would react differently to them as well. So it has to be quite a puzzle trying to figure this out. Well, you know, um, I think in the big, in the big physiological questions, um, we are more alike across ethnic groups, and that is why many people will say that ethnicity is is a social construction. You know, because when you look biologically, the differences genetically, the differences are are, are not there. You know, in in, this, in a serious way, uh, when you look at the physiology. Um, big, from a big picture perspective, no. But yes, there are some small differences in terms of how medicines are metabolized. Um, and for example, differences in kidney function. So today, uh, when people are doing as, uh, assessments of kidney function, they will make corrections for people with, of African-American heritage. In order, and if you're going to dose drugs that, are, that have to be tightly dosed according to renal function, then that really becomes important. There are medicines that have been approved specifically to treat hypertension in African-Americans. So there are indeed some differences that impact how medicines work. The, um, 
the experience of living with dementia as a minority, as a minority uh, as an African-American, at least from what I've learned from talking to people out, out in the community, is that it goes beyond that to questions about access. Um, access to care in the sense of being able to find a specialist who you, one can be confident will hear one's experience as opposed to try to as opposed to just asking questions in order to fit the person into a diagnostic box. Um, there's a difference, I think, between making a diagnosis and, um, and prescribing treatment versus actually taking care of a person. I think these things are not identical. Uh, very often, for example, I hear colleagues say there are no treatments for dementia. And my objection is, if you mean that there is no cure, there's nothing we don't have medicines that will stop neurodegeneration today, then the answer is no. But the absence of cure does not mean the absence of treatment. It does not mean that, the, it does not mean that there's nothing to be done. It doesn't mean that we can't provide care. To go back to an earlier question, um, and it's one I've heard, what, what inspires me to do this sort of work? Or how do I keep, people sometimes ask it differently. Given that there's no cure, how do you keep up your spirits? And my, and my, and I, you know, the first time I heard it, it surprised me because I didn't realize that my, my spirits needed active work to be kept, <laughs> you know. And um, I, I took them back to, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Mm. Um, and at one point, the Romans have sentenced Jesus in this movie, uh, have sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion, and they are going to have him carry his own cross to the hill. And there are crowds on both sides of the streets jeering as he carries his cross. And sometimes he stumbles. It's a big cross, 13-foot cross, I think. But every now and then, there is one person or two in the crowd who will help him up, who will bring a cup of water to his lips. Now, they were under no illusions that they were going to prevent the crucifixion. But that did not prevent them from doing acts of compassion. It did not prevent them from doing things to help. And so this is how I think of the work we do. We're not, if, if physicians were here to prescribe, I mean, to provide cure, the profession would have begun when streptomycin or penicillin was discovered. But we know that the profession has been here for thousands, has been here for over a thousand years. And that's because it started out as providing comfort. What a great answer. What a great answer. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, when I introduced you, I, I mentioned a number of different dementias, because one of the questions that comes up with people who are new to this is not understanding that it's not just one disease, it's mm -hmm. several diseases. Yes. And the behaviors one can expect to, to live with as a caregiver for somebody with these dementias can vary depending on the part of the brain that is impacted. Yes, the... Um and even the, the, the making of the diagnosis is, is, is affected by that because the part of the brain that's affected, at least in the beginning, um, influ influences the, more or less the symptoms that the problem begins with. So if the illness begins in the hippocampal areas, then you have memory loss predom predominating. If it begins in the parietal areas, then people have tr trouble tr keeping track of time, you know, finding their way, reading, writing. If it begins in the executive in the frontal lobes, then you have a predominance of misbehavior and disorganization, which is what you see in, in the most dominant form of frontotemporal dementia. People become childlike in their behavior and disorganized, unable to control their drives. 
So it, it matters where in the, in the brain the condition begins. And you know that when you're interviewing a person from the symptoms that they have, because different, different cognitive faculties are distributed differently in the brain. When I was looking at the Johns Hopkins website, it went down a list of diseases that you are interested in. And one of them was prion diseases. Yes. Now, let me state here and now, I didn't understand most of it. <laughs> but it seemed to me that there is a number of these prion diseases. And I was wondering, is frontotemporal one of them? Or are they subcompartments under front under frontotemporal? No, they're unrelated. Um, the best way to think of prion disease is to think of human mad cow. What is that? Uh, human mad cow. Uh, oh, mad, mad cow, cow mad cow. Okay. Yeah. That is what, so that's a prototypical prion disease. Um, you have them in animals. For example, scrapie is a prion disease. These are diseases that cause rapidly progressive dementia. And, um, at least in the case of Krutwell Jakob disease, which is the prototypical prion disease in humans, um, the life expectancy from onset is anywhere from one month to 21 months, something like that. There, you'll occasionally find people who live a bit longer than that, but it is extremely debilitating. It's, it's rapidly progressive. So I am interested in the, in these rapidly progressive forms of dementia. Interesting. I'm on a number of caregiving uh, Facebook sites and caregiver support groups, and new and questions come up all the time. Yes. And I do my best to be supportive in answering them all. And someone mentioned the person they were caring for insisted that their husband was not their husband, that, that he was an imposter. And I was looking for that, and I, and I came across something called crabgrass cap, grass, The crabgrass syndrome. Um, yeah, so the crabgrass syndrome is, is, a, is a delusional syndrome um, that I, I first encountered in people with, with um, psychosis, with schizophrenia. Um, and I think that's where it was first described uh, in people with psychosis. But it is observed in a variety of um, brain diseases. Um, in some cases of Alzheimer's disease, I've had a number of patients with this with this syndrome, um, and it does cause a great it can cause a great deal of conflict um, when a person insists that the person who says who claims to be their spouse or their relative is not indeed their relative. Now, in the case of major psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia, medicines it, it goes down. It you know it can it can resolve when the when the disease is well controlled. It's more difficult to to um, extinguish when it's when it arises in dementia, but it's treated the same way with with uh, medicines that are target that are directed at delusions. So, um, I suggested, and you can tell me whether I did well or should keep my mm. mouth shut was if, <laughs> if you know, the husband comes in and she says, you're not my husband, to have that man walk back out of the room for a few minutes and maybe come back and say, oh, hi, honey, how are you feeling? And maybe this time she'll accept him as who he is. Um, because very often we're trying to figure out what to do in the moment. Yes, and I think that's a, that's a, a very good solution. And, 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 and the other is to is to just assume the identity that is being, you know, to take on a different identity for the purposes of doing what needs to be done in the moment. So one might say, for example, uh, yes, I know he sent me to help you with such and such. And that at least sidesteps conflict. 
And that's very much what we're trying to do throughout these diseases. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things I wanted to ask is, so you have the interest in um, psychology, right? And and the, the workings of the brain. Yes. So you're dealing with these brain diseases. Mm-hmm. Are you also dealing with the caregivers of the uh, person with the brain disease? Well, absolutely. Um Absolutely. I sometimes, uh, you know, and maybe some people might object to this, but um, th- this kind of work is has re- similarities to pediatrics. Um, and that's not to belittle the people who have the dementia, but rather to say that you have a patient and you have a client. Yeah. Um, oh. So you have the person about who, who is going to be the subject of the interviews and, and who is going to be the one that gets examined and the one who's, who... who who swallows the pill that you and the client agree on, um, which and the client, of course, is the caregiver. So they're the ones who maybe have called and said there's a problem. Because as you know, many of these people who have these diseases do not know that they have a problem. Um, when they're told they don't, they dispute it, or they still don't see it, even if they don't. They might accept it on trust. Or and 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 there are those who recognize it, but also know that. They won't remember to make the appointments. They won't remember to, that they need help essentially to use medical services. So you have to work with the families, firstly, to get to get a complete evaluation. Secondly, um, to pres- to work out the treatments and, and frankly, to implement them because, you know, I write a prescription, but I'm not going home. I'm not going to home with the person to give it to them. Someone else is. And if there are going to be complications um, from those treatments, side effects, and, and so it's it's unlikely that the patient will be the one calling to report it. It will be the caregiver. Now, taking it further, that person, of course, has um, has that person has also needs to have good well-being because if they don't, if they're not successful, then the, the whole enterprise is not successful. And so you have to tend to the caregivers, both in terms of collaboration as well as in terms of their well-being. One of the presentations I've I have given is how to have a, a good doctor visit, and how to have everything written out. Here's my major concerns, and so on, and also building a partnership with the doctor. Not to say absolutely you got to take up all their time because the doctors are very very busy. But if you can, or if the client, as you say, can, can sit and be very clear and succinct and to the point, um, and, and building that partnership is so, so very important, not only to the caregiver getting the best out of the um, doctor, but also the best care for the care recipient. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, one of the things that a good physician or nurse practitioner, whoever is in, in the position of being the provider, uh, will, will understand, especially with experience, is that not everyone who comes in with a relative or you know, um, who has dementia knows how to use medical services. And so part of your remit is going to be to, over time, to, sh- to teach them. So sometimes people will come and they have a long list of complaints and they've waited, in my case, they may have waited three or four months uh, you know, to, to, to come in. Um, and so they want to get everything in today in this visit. 
and and I know I may know that some things can be tackled now and right. some things can wait, but they don't necessarily know this. And so over time they will, but the first time they may not. And so one has to approach this with patience, with understanding. Um, you have to always be mindful that you, you know, when I was growing up, people said treat others as you would, you know, do unto others as you would like, right. as you would be done by, and that is very real. Um, if if you were in that position, would you expect a physician to show patience, to tell you what the right way is to present your complaints if you're not doing it correctly and so on? And I think the answer is yes. And so we endeavor to do to do just that. Well, if we go back a little bit to the patient versus client, um, Mike's dad was the patient, I was the client. Um, and I, I tell people I did everything I could to save him from himself. And he did everything he could to convince the doctors that I was crazy and he could take care of himself. And he was extremely good at hiding symptoms when he was in the presence of a doctor. Um, even his, his facial expression would change, his posture would change. Um, and we see that often with people with, with a brain disease, with one of these dementias. They gather resources for a short period of time to hold on to their dignity and, and present themselves as okay which can make things difficult when you're trying to convince the doctor what's actually going on. Um, one of the things I suggest people do now is videotape on, you know, everybody has that recording mm -hmm. on their phones and to be able to actually show what's happening. Um, when we suspected Mike's dad, Mike was showing um, Parkinson's syndrome and I took him in to see the neurologist. Um, the doctor said, I don't see any, any signs of this whatsoever. And I said, what do I have to do? Videotape? And he said, why don't you? And that's what we did. And um, he ended, you know, he, his final diagnosis, which we didn't get until after he had passed, was Lewy body, which has that component in it. Um, but he did everything he could to yeah. hide that when he was in the presence of the doctor. You know, one of the things that unfortunately has been propagated in medical science, in medical training, is this notion that you can spend an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever, with a patient that you know everything. You know, if, if you were at a job, if someone were interviewing uh, for a job, say to, to be your nanny, and they'll, they'll come in as on their best behavior, you're not going to conclude that that's because they're, they're fabulous in the moment, that means they'll be a terrific nanny. You will seek references, you will ask people who know them, how they are over time. And the same is true for patients, we must, um, listen to people who know them better than we do. What we know is the performance in the office. And I don't mean performance to say that they're play acting. What I mean is how they've presented themselves and how they perform with whatever tasks we give them. That's the performance that is in the moment. Um, and that could be very good. You know, I've had people, you know, do the Minimental State Exam or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment and the person misses the date or the year. And then they, 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 uh, Care, the caregiver says, damn it, we've been practicing. We've been practicing. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so sometimes it's not just the, the patient who is trying to do well. It's the, it, you know, the caregiver wants them to do well because they want, they want them to be better. I have to say I'm old enough that I have that yearly Medicaid uh, doctor mm -hmm. visits where they have me draw a clock and 
remember the words, <laughs> and I feel really proud each time I could draw that clock correctly and put the time yeah. on there, and I remember the questions, but I always feel a little nervous when I know it's yeah. coming. Yeah. So, yeah, so to go back to your question, it's very, the, the longitudinal story is very important. And in our clinic, we, for example, we know that people don't schedule their problems. So I say to someone, come back in three months or come back in six months. Well, I don't know if three months is the right, it's just, you know, you don't hear doctors say five months or seven months. It's always one month or it's two, then it's three, six, nine, a year. So there's something arbitrary about when you're asked to return. Um, people develop have problems in between all the time. And so we, we developed a care management model where we, our nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses interact with people, where we encourage people to call in real time if they have an issue, and then we try to troubleshoot where we can. And we might, and that might include changing the visit date. Um, so that we, we, we're recognizing that people need help when they need help, not when the follow-up visit is scheduled. And I tell people uh, when, I, when they're in the clinic, I don't want your visit to be about you telling me war stories. So please call if something happens before the next appointment so that we can help you when it's, when it's a problem, not, not listen to it as a war story when you come in. So what kind of symptoms would uh, a family member observe that would lead them to reach out to you? So one could be that um, they notice, for example, so we've had sometimes people say, he seems to have difficulty swallowing his pills. Should we keep giving him that pill? And it will be a big, maybe it's a pill that's big. Should, can we crush it and put it in applesauce? Is it okay to crush it? So that's a simple question um, that really should be asked in real time because you don't want to be given the medicine incorrectly for two, four weeks um, before you discover that. And we don't want that to happen either. Um, another example might be um, he's not sleeping well. He's been roaming at night or, you know, or she seems to be coughing when she eats. Those kinds of things. In the, in the latter case, it could be swallowing difficulties are developing. You really need to find out if, if it's feeding technique or if it's swallowing, the mechanics of swallowing, because you don't want the person to, to be in the emergency department before you react. Yeah, we definitely dealt with severe dysphagia. Yeah, so so uh, those are some examples, um, and sometimes it's care issues. You know, he he's he's outside and won't come in. <laughs> it's a hot summer day, and so someone is making a frantic call. I can't bring him back into the house. What do I do? Um, so there's mostly these are practical everyday things, but once in a while there are things that might prompt us to say, go to the emergency department. So we used to have a very, once we had a very energetic, ebullient gentleman, and then the wife calls and says, he's, he's sleeping too much. He seems to be lethargic. And she was not, a, she was not the one to, she was one who's not quick to complain. Uh, and she was complaining about something that should, should bring her relief, which is this man who is usually difficult to corral is sleeping too much, you know, Often that's something to celebrate, but so for her to complain about it, we thought this may be serious. And it turned out he had a diabetic ketoacidosis and he ended up in the ICU. Wow. Dr. Onyike, it's, my head is filled with all kinds of stuff now, <laughs> but that usually does happen um, with these episodes. And, you know, I have to process and 
take and understand <laughs> and and whatnot. But you certainly gave us some food for thought to oh well, thank you to uh, maybe snack on and <laughs> <laughs> certainly certainly appreciate you being on with us and for our listeners. It's been an absolute joy. Well, thank you. We could have had him on here for an hour or more, even just talking about the various forms of dementia and how they manifest and, and how we can best support people who are living with it. So you may hear from us again. I'll be delighted to return. Thank you very much. This has been a pleasure too. It's very important to communicate with, with communities, with, with our communities, with the advocates, we we count on on our advocates to make sure to to for example to push to push uh, the policymakers to make it easier to do to do the work we do and to and 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 make it easier for people to to live with these diseases. There's a lot of support that's needed. Um, there's a lot of informal care that's very expensive. Um, and without a vibrant uh, without people like you doing things like this, um, making sure that. There's, there's dialogue, there's continuing dialogue about what's needed, what's happening, uh, what we can do. Uh, it would be very difficult to do what I do. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you for what thank you do. Thank you. So I really had an aha moment with the correlation of the pediatrics. Yes. And that there's a patient and there's a client and never thought of it in that perspective, but it, it really breaks it down to a very understandable point. Well, that, that's one of the reasons why I've been talking with people in the caregiving world about getting a designation for an essential caregiver. Having someone with dementia go into a hospital for any reason when they cannot understand what's happening or answer questions properly, it's, it's critical that they have an advocate with them, just like you would have a parent answering questions for a child. Right. Another thing that he said is that people need help when they need help, not necessarily their next appointment two months or three months later. They need help right here and now. And to bring that to the forefront and bring that to the um, care provider. And I certainly appreciated the, the patient and client. Yes. Um, I know your dad wanted the doctors to talk to him. Right. I wanted the doctors to talk to me. Um, and they were educated enough or caring enough they, that they did both. But that's not always the case. Right. You can find more about Dr. Anyike on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D. G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, 
an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.